Hello, I'm Rob Forsyth. Welcome to Liberalism in Question. In this half-hour podcast series from the Centre for Independent Studies, we explore questions and challenges to liberalism today. I'm very pleased that my guest today is Sabine Leprespal. Sabine is chair of the German liberal think tank, Friedrichshaw Institute, or Free Vision Institute. And she joins me from Berlin. Sabine, welcome to the program. Thank you for inviting me. Pleasure um, to be here. Can I ask you, what, what is the view of the Freebeek Institute on what liberalism is? Well, we adhere to the kind of uh, classic, um, actually Anglo-Saxon um, idea of liberalism, which relates right back to the 17th century. So I believe that the core pillars of liberalism are freedom and tolerance. And you can't have one without the other. So freedom being the classic freedoms, freedom of expression, freedom of speech, freedom of assembly, freedom of religion, people having the right to, to live and their religion. Um, and um, tolerance, of course, going back to the uh, often attributed to Voltaire, the sentence attributed to Voltaire, saying, I, 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 I disagree with you deeply, but I will defend to my death your right to, to say what you want to say. So um, that's really our notion of liberalism. And we think that uh, a, no free society, no thriving society can live without these basic pillars. That's a, a definition I think would be very familiar to us here at the Centre for Independent Studies. Can I ask, have you always been a believer or a supporter of this vision? Or have you changed your mind in life to come to support it? Well, I think I, in the past years, the idea of free speech has become more and more important to me. So I realized um, how crucial it is as things became more shaken up in German politics. So if you remember the, the early days in the, in the Cold War, the world seemed to be much more kind of you know stable and you had your sort of a line of thought. So I come from a very social democratic family and it was more the kind of social democratic idea. And then you had um, the end of the Cold War, the wall came down and and suddenly you started having to challenge a lot of the beliefs you, you might have had in the past. Um, we were also confronted with new ideas, people coming from Eastern Europe and bringing in new ideas of, of, of freedom and, and liberalism themselves. So this was kind of um, something which, which got us thinking. Um, we also felt in the last years the realms of debates narrowing down more and more um, through um, certain, um, for example, we had uh, the, the migration crisis in 2015, which really shook up German society quite a bit. And there were very, very suddenly, very, very, a very hard, harsh climate of debate. People saying, um, you know, whenever you had a critical voice about immigration, oh, yes. you were then suddenly uh, allocated to the right wing. And so these were kind of things which, which got, got me thinking and saying, well, we need a much broader basis of debate. We need much more, um, you know, much more tolerance, really, um, on what people are saying, listening to what people are saying. Um, and this is why we founded our institute, saying that's our basic aim is to get the debate going, to stop accusing each other of, of being right wing or left wing and just kind of listening and trying to uh, move further towards, you know, what what, you know, what do we really believe and, and, and what where, where should we go as a society? 
So just like Greg Lindsay founded the Centre of Independent Studies way back in the 1970s, you decided to do something about this problem and not just think about it and found your institute. Uh, yes. What, 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 uh, what, what, what do you do? I, I, just briefly, what, what is the work of the Institute? Well, we, uh, for example, in Berlin, we have what we call um, our Berlin Salons once a month. We have debates on topics, important issues. Uh, we've been talking a lot, obviously, about COVID these last uh, months and years. Uh, we've also um, talked about um, women's liberation issues. We have a big discussion in Germany at the moment about gender, gender language. We spoke briefly just before this podcast about German. So German is a language which has uh, um, sexualized nouns. Yeah? So we have male nouns, female nouns, and there is a huge debate at the moment in Germany about um, non-discrimination, which has, which has affected our language. So there is this idea that in the past, when you wanted to talk about male and female, you would use uh, the male form, yeah? saying it yes. included everything. And that, that led to some injustices, um, to be fair. But um, the way things are going, it's now become a requirement for all public radio stations to constantly use the female form whenever they're speaking and actually even changing words from a, in, in, in a very sort of grammatically strange way. It's a bit like Life of Brian, you know, I don't know if you know that scene when they're sitting and talking. Yes, to I do. I do. It's... And I say, oh, yes, and women, and women. And, and it... And it's you know and and, and it really makes uh, radio uh, radio programs awkward and strange and service after service show that the majority of the Germans really don't want this don't agree with this so all these kind of issues which which have come wow. up in the last years we've been talking about when I studied and, German at, at high school many years ago I was taught that the the D and der and D were, were not sexual but merely gender they weren't meant to be uh, referring to gender in fact am I right in German. Uh, the word for the, the little das Mädchen, which is neuter, for the young woman, which... Yes. Is, we'll come back to this. I want to come back to that in a moment. I'm wondering, in German history, you talked about you yourself picking some of the Anglo-Saxon world. Is there a tradition of liberalism? And I'm just thinking then, my guess is, is the 1848 failed revolution a moment when liberalism had its day and then was overcome by other forces? Would that be fair? Yes, I think that would be fair. Um... So uh, that is a, a very tragic moment, really. And um, the way it's interpreted is that it was the, um, the bourgeoisie, the rising bourgeoisie with liberal ideas, which then somehow um, gave up, um, lost the struggle, lost the fight, um, and um, opted later um, for unity against freedom. So. You had German reunification in 1871. The, the, yes, the second, um, the second empire. Was, yes, that's right. And it was a reunifi reunification, or uh, not a reunification, a unification following a war, a very kind of, um, uh, you know, militaristic situation. Unification from above by Bismarck rather than from below the yes. people. So all this affected uh, German history, and it's. Uh, yeah, and if you look at, actually, I get quite uh, sentimental about German history because whenever I, I read about it, I always think, oh, my goodness, you know, it could have gone completely, it could have gone this way, but it Although, went this way. So always very, very close. Sabine, yes. am I not right that the flag of the German 
Republic is the flag of the 1848 revolution. Yes. Which means yes, that, that's right. which must have been a conscious decision by these, I guess it would have been the Federal Federal Republic in in the 50, early 50s to identify with the 1848 liberal revolution, even if it failed. Yes, that's right. And it is something uh, Germany, German politics does go back to, although it's very interesting because um, just a couple of years ago, we had uh, the anniversary uh, or an anniversary of the founding of the German uh, Reich, German, reunif uh, German unification, and it just passed by and nobody really kind of, you know, it was just. A, this is the, the 1871. Yeah, the really there you are. Well, the Versailles Hall of Mirrors is very, very expensive to uh, hire these days, I'm sure. <laughs> Was there? Yeah, I mean, was... this is the thing you see. Germans don't like to think too much about the history. You know, it's no. uh, it's well, one I... of the problems is that that you say, well, we, you know, it's 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 all so messy. It's all so terrible, but it does mean that you also forget the kind of positive things in German history. You know, the the, the kind of chances Germany had, which you might pick up and, and build on, but that's was... not really what's done. Hmm? Uh, am I also right? There was a flowering of liberal very almost notorious flowering of liberal ideas and thoughts after the Great War. I mean, uh, it was, cr was crushed by the coming of National Socialism, but there was a time, I believe, when Berlin was some of the most um, free places in, in Europe in, in, as a reaction to the authoritarianism of the Willemite Empire. Yes. I mean, this was, uh, uh, of, yeah, I mean, that was November um, uh, 1918, and you had uh, people... Mm. Um, on the streets and saying we want um, democracy. That's really what it was. It was a radical a demand for radical democracy. It's often seen um, or described as a demand for communism, which really it wasn't. If you go back to the time, it was radical democracy, getting rid of the monarchy. It wasn't actually clear um, in the first days after the war whether the monarchy would really be, you know, whether the, the king would abdicate, but he had to. Pressure was so strong. Yes. Um, and it's another one of these tragic moments of German history because a lot of that kind of democratic sentiment, which was, which was really, uh, which was really there, wasn't used. So it was kind of, people tried to rechannel it. And I would argue that um, now you have to really go back to history. Uh, I'm actually trying to write a book on that period at the moment, um, so it's quite quite interesting. But I would argue that it was the Social Democrats who played a, a negative role in in undermining and, and suppressing some of that very kind of radical democratic sentiment and by aligning themselves with the old military, um, with some of the old military forces. I'm thinking of, there's a very famous German who gave us a form of government, <laughs> which has caused untold suffering in the world. I'm thinking of Karl Marx, who wrote uh, as a reaction right. to the 1848 failure. Is there, has there been in, in I mean, this is, this is probably a silly question, but has there been a kind of, within German history, a tendency towards socialism or, or a love of socialism in various forms that only after the Second World War has it finally been, well, even then still, social Democrats do very well in Germany, don't they? Is there some reason why Germans are not as individualistic as, say, Anglo-Saxons, therefore think much more of the community, therefore of more corporatist, more communitarian ways of doing, running society? 
Maybe in the sense that, uh, I mean, the Anglo-Saxon, uh, talking about Britain, which was, of course, the country of uh, the Industrial Revolution, which yes. happened much, much earlier. So Germany was, a bit, in a funny way, Germany was a bit like China in the, uh, in the, in the late 19th century, you know, copying everything. From Britain, so most of you know you would have industrialists going actually going to Britain, and Engels was one of them, famous, wow. you know, looking at how that Britain doing things, and and you had a different type of society. Um, I think probably it's also true that the German um, trade union movement and and the German, as you say, the Social Democratic Party was probably much stronger, which would have brought in this. Um, communitarian sentiment um so um you had the the, the social democrats at, at before the first world war becoming the strongest party in germany so that would have made a difference to the kind of debates you yes, had in, in yes. the country and it was bismarck who brought in what i think a good reform but nonetheless are welfare state reforms like the age pension am i not right that's uh, as a response to the pressure he was under, um, but he also had the anti-socialist laws, which we not forget that. Oh, so I see. He, okay. um, so it was a, it was a very very repressive time, and I um, just read in a in a little history book that, for example, um, there was an um, uh, an attempt uh, 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 the, when the king was shot. Um, it was uh, a woman was sentenced to prison for saying, well, he's a very wealthy man. He can have good doctors treating him. And she got like nine months prison for that. Oh, dear. It was a very, very kind of repressive free speech was never very strong in Germany um, and only became an issue. Actually, uh, as you said, after the uh, First World War, after the Great well. War and the, the kind of revolutionary sentiment around that time. Yes. So do you, do you in your institute, your Free Vision Institute. Are you lone voice? Are you are you a lone voice crying in the wilderness, or are you part of a growing movement in Germany? I guess it probably <laughs> depends think... on day to day, does it? Which which day I ask you? <laughs> no, I think there's been. We're not. A, it would be too much to say that we're a lone voice. There are um, discussion groups all over the country, and there is. A, I would say there is a thriving. A debating culture in Germany. Um, but um, so we've been, um, yeah, we've, uh, there are people, the, the issue of cancel culture, for example. So that's something we picked up very, very early saying we have a problem here. Uh, we do have, in fact, a growing problem of people who, who lose their jobs or their positions or, or, oh. or get kicked out of a uh, public meetings, de-invited after having fallen out of grace for some reason. So we were one of the first to, to kind of um, to, to kind of touch uh, or, or, or talk about that problem. Um, but there is a growing discussion about it in Germany. And I think there is a growing sort of uh, recognition that something has has oh, has gone wrong. Something oh, that's has gone amiss. I noticed you've, you've printed a book on, on cancer culture. I'll try and pronounce it because it's a very interesting title. It's called Council Concert und Meinungsfreiheit, which which means free speech in German. But the Council Culture language is in English. Yes. Is there is there not a German and it word? Is a phenomenon is there a which German has word? come from Britain or from America? And, and, and America, I think, my view, America much yes. more than than than, uh, than Britain actually. Is yes, America? Yes. Is there a German word for Council Culture, or is is the is the concept an import from? No, uh, we use the Anglicism. 
we use the Anglo system, and I think it's probably so. There's been censorship in Germany. Um, I think um, always. I don't think German society has ever existed without censorship, and uh, part of that um, wow. goes back. Of oh, well, censorship we have now goes back to the Second World War and the kind of um, uh, anti-fascist sentiment. You know, saying we must never again have a situation like this. So uh, when Germany was um, uh, you know, refounded after the Second World War, there were a lot of kind of checks and balances put into oh, the German constitution, which limits the debate. So that's something Germans grew up with and Germans know quite well. But cancel culture is a little bit different because it doesn't actually come from the state so much. You know, it's not a law in that sense. It's more a kind of cultural thing. So mm. it's a certain pressure groups, um, journalists who, who get overexcited about um, people um, voicing an, uh, an unpleasant opinion and then calling on them to be cancelled. And that's a sort of different matter. And that's why we use the, the, the English term cancel culture, because it's become like, you know, it's, it's, it's more it's clearer that that's what we're talking about. It's nothing that's, official. That's very interesting. In fact, I'm just thinking, poor Germany, you had you had censorship during the during the um, first, Second Empire. <laughs> Yes. You had some freedom, possibly in the early days of the Weimar. You've had cancelled. You had massive censorship in the in the National Socialist era, and now once that's over, you have anti-fascist censorship in the founding of the Federal Republic. And every time, someone's always trying to keep, shut people up to do them good. That's yes, why I say so. Yes, to protect people from themselves. And the funny thing is that you mentioned it was uh, anti-fascist censorship, but actually. Um, so there was a, a law against radicalism enshrined in the German constitution. And the first time it, it was applied was actually against the Communist Party, it was uh, made illegal in the 1950s uh, wow. for communist propaganda. So it's, it's, it's very, very flexible, um, but it does speak to a deep mistrust of, of people, well, you know, well, saying you cannot trust people. Well, can I push back um, on that for a moment? Uh, maybe if you are a German in the Federal Republic and you've seen your history and you hear that you, and you know that a lot of people still hold radical ideas that just because the war was lost didn't mean people changed their mind about things and against them is other radicals of, of the communists, left and right. Don't, was there not a case, do you think, in the early days for preventing propaganda by either un, unreformed Nazis or communists? Or do, or do you think that freedom ought to always trump if the, uh, the the argument, I'm I would say really free. Yes. <laughs> as a true liberal in that part front, I would say freedom always trumps. Uh, um, should should be the most important principle because you cannot have a, this principle uh, while at the same time censoring um, thought. I mean, I understand that people were after the war um, a bit worried, but on the other hand, Nazism had discredited itself. Completely. Um, yes, yes. It was a. Uh, it was clear. I mean, Germany was in rubbles, and um, as, um, and I, and I think that if there were still right wing sentiments, they should have been brought out into the open, and they were brought out into the into the open and challenged. And that was the whole problem that you couldn't challenge them in that time in that fascist era, because um, you know we have to remember that the Nazis came to power and immediately. 
uh, suppressed whatever liberalism there would have been, free parties. People had to go in hiding almost like from day one of the fascist takeover. So there there were elections after 1933. They were far from free elections and held under massive repression. So there's a worry. Yes, keep going. Finish your point, please, Sabine. No, no, it's fine. I'm sorry. I was saying, so there's a way in which for a country like England, uh, Britain, I should say, and, and the United States, there are issues here, real big issues about freedom and being suppressed, cancel culture and so forth. But they've kind of, they're countries with a long tradition of open debate, notwithstanding these problems, and maybe therefore take it for granted. For a German, this is a precious commodity, which has been such such a rare commodity that perhaps you're more enthusiastic about it because you've seen for so many years the suppression of thinking of free speech in a way that others have taken for granted. Am I right? I wouldn't generalise it. I don't think so. So I have, I'm very Ah, anglophile and uh, (laughs) I, I, I get a lot of my ideas, I have to say, from Britain. And I follow the British press very closely. I'm, I'm a great admirer of the British debating culture and, as you said, the free speech um, culture. I don't think it is uh, as entrenched in Germany. I think that Germans have yeah. a very, um, you know, they've become so used to this idea of um, um, speech being regulated and needing a, an institution, an authority to kind of guarantee this whole thing. So we have... Right. Germany is probably one of the, so we have a constitutional court. That's another thing, which, and in fact, in the last years, we've had this very um, um, worrying development of political debates rather than being um, carried through and, and, and brought to, the, to, to some kind of conclusion. They've been immediately pushed onto the constitutional court with um, asking judges then to, to, to make a judgment on which opinion is right and which opinion is wrong. Yeah. That, that's so, a, um, can you give me impression? Can you give me an example? That that's, it seems to me quite astounding. Can you give me yeah, an example? It is astounding and very dangerous. Well, we've had it again and again. We had it in the um, in, in, during the COVID period. So we had um, um, all the demonstrations were forbidden, and um, rather than sort of having a debate on whether this is, which was completely the wrong thing to do, I think, but it was always immediately then brought to the courts and left to the courts to decide on how to deal with this uh, this virus and, and, and the restrictions. But we've had that on the, uh, in the, uh, on the Euro level, the EU level, whenever there were sort of um, problems arising through the common currency or through the, the within the EU, they've always been discussed in, in, in court, they have been discussed in society, but it's always been sort of the court which had the last word as right. to um, whether a, a certain financial policy was right or was wrong. And once it's reached the courts, it sort of uh, left public debate. You know, yes. so it was then sitting at the court, and people were then saying, "Well, we have to wait and see what what court will tell us, what the court, what the judges will tell us." Uh, and I, I see that as a very very problematic development. I, I, I'm, sh- I'm sure you're right. And judges uh, can be very fine people, but they're not experts in so many things. And why they therefore are the ones to make decisions on what basically are policy matters strikes me as, as will, will lead to bad policy, bad decisions. People are going to get hurt out of it. Yes. I mean, you had the same thing in immigration. So saying whether, uh, you know, certain immigration policies were justified or not. And um these are issues which should be decided within society. You need to come to some kind of arrangement and some kind of conclusion. And, um, otherwise, you know, you, you have a, 
open, uh, an unsettled issue, which sort of carries on and on and on and is never resolved. I'm speaking to uh, Sabine Bepreshpal, who's the chair of the Liberal Think Tank, Friedrichs Institute or Free Vision Institute and in, in, uh, in Germany, speaking to me today from Berlin. Can I ask about COVID? You mentioned it. Um, we here in Australia had uh, very draconian laws, which caused a lot of controversy. And even to, even to demonstrate against vaccine mandates, that is against vaccines being compulsory, whether has led to um, the demonising of the, the protesters. I mean, it's, they're a mixed lot, I know, and all kinds of strange ideas go around. But we've even found in Australia, I think, uh, a, a, a less tolerance for free discussion and debate during COVID as well. I guess it's the fear of the disease causes you to shut down freedom. Yes. I mean, fear is always a very bad um, advisor and we had the same here. So um, you saw how um, fear um, was this very powerful um, um, limit uh, limitation to all kinds of debates. So we had massive limitations on debates, on free movement. Um, we had um, demonstrations banned. Demonstrations. Yes, we had the same and mandatory yeah. vaccines yeah. are still on the table. So Germany might well be the only country or one of the few countries which will introduce mandatory vaccines. There is a, a, a law which is uh, being discussed in parliament at the moment. With, with, with um, this law, you yeah. mean everyone else get everyone must get vaccinated? That sort of law? Yes. Wow. Yes. And uh, if they don't, there'll be a, a heavy fine. Um, Austria introduced it, was the first country which introduced it and was sort of um, Germany then followed, but it's not off the table. There is uh, resistance. There are um, a few groups who, uh, even a few li liberals within parliament, staunch liberals who are speaking up against it, but the majority seems to be in favour. So this is another sort of worrying trend we're seeing in Germany, yes. um, and something which our institute certainly will protest against. One, one of your, your most recent book, I think, is called Rausstermitter, Get Out of the Middle. And the, uh, the subtitle text is How Party Consensus Undermines Our Democracy. Um, can you tell us more of why you think party consensus is bad for democracy? Well, actually, I wanted to call the book uh, uh, The Radical, Get Out of the Radical Middle, because there is this ah. nice term which a British, I think, a British um, sociologist phrased, and I, um, they wouldn't let me. But what, um, what, what, what would that be in German? <laughs> die radikale Mitte. Oh, I like that. <laughs> Raus die radikale Mitte. <laughs> yes, because, uh, well, I, I, I think we've suffered in the past years tremendously from a, a huge um, party cross-party consensus, which is also uh, limited debates in, in, a, in a big way and pushed um, all oppositions into the outer parliamentarian realm and, and strengthened what you might call populism. So you've had a consensus on almost um, everything, uh, even things which... Uh, so an example was the, um, the, the, I don't know, the in 2013, there was this ma the massive euro crisis, the e the the um, yes. sovereign debt crisis, and yes. uh, it was a very contentious issue. And there were questions of how to deal with it. Should we have more austerity or less austerity? Should banks be saved? And uh, it, it was a cross-party consensus because only very very few um, 
dissident, dissidents, brave people spoke out against it. Again, they brought the issue to, to, the, um, to the constitutional court. And most of these dissidents came from different parties. So it was not uh, wow. like they were from one party, but they were from different parties. But in each case, they were very quickly isolated within their parties. And most of them now are not actually even in active politics anymore. Um, so there was a consensus and a, a kind of feeling almost like in a war, we have to stand together and if we don't all agree on this. There'll be a massive problem. Is and we of, had the same thing in COVID, of course. You it's know, part saying, of the same, I may, this may be a naive question. Most of my questions probably are actually, but isn't the fact also you've got a uh, system of government which, which, which almost very requires coalitions? Yes. And, and therefore you don't have a clear government party and opposition party. Have I, have I understood that correctly? Well, we don't have the same system as in Britain where you have the first-past-the-post system. So no, you have, no. uh, you know, you need majority, so you need to well, form coalitions. We've got that. We've got um, uh, um, preferential where you, you you have your second and third vote counted as you go down. So the, the, winning, the winning party ought to have, if not people's first vote, they voted more for it than they did for the, for the, for the opposition. But that's not your system. Um, we have, well, we have two, yes, we have first and second votes, but we have uh, the second vote is the, the vote which counts, which is then uh, the vote for the strongest party. And we've had an interesting trend in these last years that we don't have a, uh, a classic party system anymore as in the past. So as I, I mentioned at the beginning, I come from a social democratic party and I remember it was always politics was always divided between the conservatives and the social democrats and it was yep. uh, you know and, and and that was it and you were somewhere um in found yourself in one of these parties and that's not the case anymore at all so we don't have what the germans used to call volksparteien a people's yes. party people's that was party, actually yes. the word uh, because they 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 gathered so much support and we don't have that anymore so the classic big parties both of them have lost massive votes in the last years uh, have lost membership have been um, so at the moment, we have a, a completely new situation, which I don't think Germany, no, which I know Germany's never had in the post-war period, which is a coalition of three parties, uh, the strongest party being the Social Democrats, but actually leading this coalition on a very, very weak basis with only a, 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 a minute advantage towards the other parties and nowhere near a majority, so only about only about having the support of only about 20, 23% of the population, which of course makes it a very, very weak to government, always having to negotiate, always having to agree on their politics um, and being pretty much in parliament because they say, well, it's our turn now, you know, we'd like to, we'd also like to, to govern, but there's very little they actually agree on. Um, they, 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 uh, they, 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 it's, it's basically a, a, a coalition of, of necessity, you would say. And this is um, not led to good government or good freedom, you're saying? Well, it's certainly, again, it's it's sort of uh, limiting. And um, so um, the interesting thing is that we have um, the Green Party as one of the coalition members, which mm -hmm. is sort of represents the kind of liberal left, uh, greenish, I, I, we call them liberals, um, strand of liberalism, identitarian liberalism. But we also have the Liberal Party, which was uh, traditionally um, the more kind of economic liberals and had a bit of a, a sort of um, individual liberal um, 
a political concept to it. And, and originally, the idea was that these two parties, the Green Party and the Liberal Party, were actually complete opposites. They were both liberal, but on this whole long spectrum of liberalism. Um, but now you see that actually they, they do agree, they have much more in common than people might have thought. So both of them represent a, a, an elite in Germany, but both of them represent the better off. The, the, and and, and they therefore also um, generate their politics alongside this elite. Uh, they're, they, 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 they do, they focus a lot on minority rights. Um, they're against uh, anything to do with, uh, they, they, they love supranational politics. They love the EU, for example. They, um, they're in this business of taking decisions away from the people, both of them. So that's a very kind of strong um, impetus and gives people who don't like that kind of politics very little to, to, to do anything against, you know, to do anything about what can you do if you're a liberal and you don't agree with this, with these kind, with that kind of political trend, the only thing you can do is go into the opposition and say you want to found your own groups, you want to, you want to do something different. So, so perhaps the, the breakdown of, of the big parties has not been a good thing at all. Say, I, I, I raise this because um, people often think that we'd have a more free society if, if big parties didn't weren't there. We had a lot of independent independents voting on things. But are you suggesting that there's actually a downside when strong parties break down and you're forced into into endless compromises and so forth? Is, is, is that is, is that a conclusion you can draw from the present situation? I mean, if the big parties do represent people's desires and wishes, then I think, yes, then I think the big parties do have something to to, right. to, to speak for them. So you'd say, um, you know, they they uh, they might not, they, they do represent, people find their uh, own wishes within that big party, which was what happened in the past. You said, I don't agree fully with the social Democrats, but all in all, they do represent what I would, you know, they're going in the right direction. Um, on the other hand, I do think that the idea of having different parties is is very positive. So I don't know if the first past the post policy, as as you have it in Britain, is better because you're always excluding. You have what you might call a party dictatorship. You know, party dictatorship, yes. parties sharing power amongst themselves, um, with very little scope for for new parties um, being able to push into that system. Yes. So I think. Yes. Um, yeah. I, see so I think so. I think uh, you know, having a coalition system isn't a bad thing as long as parties stick to their policies and really represent the people uh, who they're meant to represent and provide div genuine diversity of viewpoint rather than a progressive consensus, which sounds like you've got in your so-called liberal parties in uh, in in uh, in Germany. Yes, I was thinking one argument against my point of view that large parties are good for good for freedom is. Uh, the massive confusion of the uh, uh, Israeli system, its compromises and challenges. That's <laughs> there's everything going on there. Can I, as we come to an end, okay, yes, can I on this final thing before I talk about a foreign affair matter? It's probably very hard to tell, but are you optimistic about liberalism in Germany? Real liberalism, um, I mean, not, 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 not the not, not the not, not the name, but the, the real liberalism in Germany. 
Yes, I think I am optimistic about it. I, I think that we have um, a younger generation which has grown up and um, we have, uh, I, think, I think debating culture, despite all the problems which I've mentioned, is still alive and well. I think we have to keep a, an eye on it. We have to make sure that... Um, um, you know, that we are going the right, we're getting it right this time in German history. Um, we, yes. We're quite lucky because we have these, um, we, we have, uh, we do have a number of people who have experienced a completely different system, as you said in the, at the beginning. Mm. So we still have a bit of a divide between East and West. And strangely, it is often the people in the, in the East who are um, who are protesting? You know, who are saying we don't like this kind of um, we don't like cancel culture, we don't like people telling us what to think, we don't like the one-dimensional um, news we're getting often. You know, this kind of only one interpretation of the truth, and and I think that's that's quite a good chance Germany has you know, that we have this. Uh, we also I, I was also heartened. I have two um, teen, two children. They're not actually teenagers anymore. Time goes by so fast. They've just become 20. And, uh, but uh, they voted for the first time in the last elections. And I was very, very surprised. Both of them voted for the Liberal Party because they told me they wanted uh, to support um, freedom, freedom rights. And I thought they were oddballs because they're my kids. But then I realized that their generation, the first time voters, that was the strongest party which first time voters voted for was the Liberal Party. And I'm not exactly sure why, you know, obviously I don't, I haven't spoken to every one of these young kids, but there, you know, you, you do see that they might, that, that, that's surprising with all the kind of green issue, the climate debate and everything with, with going on. You would have thought they might have voted for the Green Party, but they voted the Liberal Party, which is the strongest party with Although, young people. So that's a good thing, you know. So you said the Liberal Party was a kind of not entirely Liberal Party. <laughs> yes, that's true. <laughs> But we also have to remember that there's very little choice for young people. Yes. And yes. from all the kind of parties they might have chosen from, it's not probably not the worst choice. Um, at least it, it answers the question of whether I'm hopeful. And I say, well, it's, yes, it's not the worst thing that could have happened. At the time of our speaking, the situation in uh, Ukraine is unclear where it's going to go. It's certainly developing. But many people were surprised some very pleasantly, some I assume may not as pleasantly, at the remarkable change in German foreign policy and defence policy that occurred in late February this year. Um, I, I, you're there on the ground. What do you make of it? And what does it mean for liberalism, if anything? Um, well, I... I would say for, uh, for the moment, nothing really uh, positive for liberalism. Uh, it's uh, Germany reacted because it was under massive pressure and um, there, there were very close ties, especially between the Social Democratic Party and, and, and the Russian government, which um, mm. Germany was criticized for. And uh, so by invading the Ukraine, Russia uh, crossed the famous red line and Germany had to react. Um, but as I... It's giving more money for military um, might be necessary because we've had these talks about how terrible and what terrible situation the German army is in. But um, it doesn't mean that this money is necessarily well invested. So you you know you we have spent a lot of money in the past years on external consultants, 
uh, and there's actually been a parliamentary inquiry into this. So all this money gone, where is this money which taxpayers have paid for the military? And now we're hearing that Germany is not able to defend itself. So it's also a question of policy. And uh, there's another kind of um, very contentious issue in Germany, and I might be one of the few people who's now who's, who's saying this, but I think in the past we had mandatory military service with a right to um, for for conscientious objection, and um, and actually um, it was uh, it was scrapped. It was gotten rid of in the past years, and people thought this was a very very good progressive move. But the problem is, of course, that by doing that, the military has become far less democratic. You have far less democratic control over the German military. People don't really know what's happening in the military anymore. And there might be an it might be an idea to kind of reintroduce that, including women, though, you know, saying to young people that um, military is not something which should float above society. We should all know what's happening. We should all decide whether we want foreign missions, whether we want where we want money for the military to go. Um, we see that something has to happen. We know that the world isn't as peaceful as we might have thought it was. It is a serious situation we're having at the moment in Europe, but we have to control our own government and our own military, and we have to know where we're going in this. So rather ironically, something which looks illiberal, conscription, you think yes. may actually mean, strangely enough, a freer engagement with the society, with the, with the military. That's a very interesting point of view. Yes. Very interesting. Uh, Germany's often sat in the middle of Europe and um, not, not yes, yes uh, balancing between east and west, between the Russians and, uh, and the, uh, the west, the, the Americans, you might say. Um, in fact, I, I, I read, a, read a piece in the, in the, uh, by Joseph Joff in early March in the Wall Street Journal, where he, by the way, remembers that um, von Bismarck once counseled, never cut the link to St. Petersburg. So there's always been this two way. Do you think Germany will hold out? It's this reaction, um, surprising reaction, which has got strong, strong support, consensus in, except for the extreme parties. It's all right, all right, relatively early on, but you have the Germans got, got the strength of character to put up with more expensive prices, less available gas uh, for the next year or two years uh, as this matter continues on? Or do you think they will um, not sustain it any further? Because it, it is a very big, very big change of policy, which is going to cost Germany as well as, as others in keeping the policy. Yes. Um, it's, uh, I think the main problem is the dependency on Russian gas. So Germany made this very foolish decision to move towards entirely towards alternative energies in the past years. Um, and uh, the last atomic power stations have been switched off or are being switched off this year, meaning um, that Germany really has no choice um, and has also tried to become a leader in, in, in global warm, anti-global warming policy, meaning that the coal power stations will also be switched off. So um, there was the famous joke Putin made a couple of years ago saying, well, it's all very nice. And I understand that Germans are afraid of atomic power, but how do they want to heat their flats in winter? Do they want to use firewood? So that's an absolute point. And I think Germany is completely dependent on Russian, on cheap gas. Well, it might, 
gas. It, it doesn't even have harbors for liquid gas. So these things uh, make me very skeptical as to whether how far we can hold Indeed. out. We're moving into summer now, which is good. Winter will come, and winters can be quite hard in Germany. Yes. Well, I hate to say this on my podcast, but on that point, Putin was right. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I, I, I must say, it, I, it was... In, in, I was in, with incredulity. I heard about the closing down of the nuclear because um, anyway, once you've got paid the capital costs, it's a very good form of low emissions power. But uh, there you are. Can I reassure you, Sabine? Your worry about spending money and wasting it on defence—that's a strong tradition here in Australia. Okay. <laughs> um, just to reassure you that you're not alone. Uh, overuse of consultants rather than government make decisions again. We are as one on this matter as well, I'm afraid. <laughs> Which means the tasks of your think tank and our think tank is very much needed. Well, thank you thank very you. much. Thank you very much for being my guest today. I've been speaking to Sabine Bepperstahl, the chair of the German Liberal Think Tank, the Freiblick Institute from Berlin, um, and uh, talking about some of the challenges and issues of liberalism in that great country of Germany. This has been another podcast from the Centre for Independent Studies. For decades, the CIS has been an independent voice working to deliver evidence-based policy within a classical liberal framework. We rely solely on the generosity of people like you for donations to advance our cause. Head to cis.org.au to see how you can get involved. I'm Rob Forsyth. Thank you for listening. I'm Rob Forsyth. You're listening to Liberalism in Question.